All right, I have been talking about it for weeks. My new book that's coming out, and a lot of you reached out. I offered to send it to you in a digital format, like kind of the not quite final version, the needs a few edits still version. I sent it out to you guys to take a look at, like an advanced copy, and tons of you reached out and asked for that. And for that support, I really, really thank you. But the day has finally come. My book, Level Jumping, is available right now on Amazon. So if you've got that advanced digital copy and you want to get your hands on an actual physical copy, then you can go to Amazon to get that right now. If you didn't get that advanced copy, no worries. It's there for you now on Amazon. Guys, I am so excited about this. I can't even tell you. And if you would go and grab yourself a copy and give me a rating and review on Amazon, it would mean the world. I'm really excited about it. And as you guys know, because I've been talking about it for a while, my book is all about how I scaled my business from uh, doing a couple of deals a month in real estate to well over 10, 12, 15 deals a month. I get asked all the time how I was able to scale up like that. And I have been helping people for years scale their business. Well, I figured it was time to put it in a book and that's exactly what I've done. So please go to Amazon right now. Check it out. Look for level jumping. I would be so grateful if you did. And if you give me a rating and review on Amazon for that book, I would really appreciate that also. All right, guys, just wanted to give you that huge announcement. Big news for me. All right, let's dive into the show now. We could just keep doing the same thing we're doing today for the next 20 years and nothing would change. But if you really want to grow, something has to change. And with any change, there is an inherent risk involved. We cannot mitigate every single risk factor out there. So at some point, you have to take a leap of faith. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. Hey guys, thank you for joining me here on Just Start Real Estate. I appreciate it. I appreciate you being here as always. Guys, there's lots of things we could be doing right now and you're choosing to be with me. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, coming to you today with a strong one. I think this is another really good one. I know I say that a lot, uh, but honestly, guys, I don't I don't interview people. I don't bring people on that I don't think will significantly enrich your experience here on the podcast. And uh, today is no exception. And as I record these, just a little kind of a preview into how a podcast is produced, at least with me, is I do the interview and then come back and do this intro so I have some context and a better feel for the guest. And I can tell you, this was one of the better guests I think that I've had on because it's very relatable and she's very, very, very smart lady, very, um, uh, very clear in her goals and very focused. And I really like talking to people like that. Um, so on the show today, I have Pollock Shah. She is the founder and owner of Open Spaces Capital that generates over $1 million in revenue. An engineer by trade, after the birth of her two kids, she decided to make the move into entrepreneurship to be able to spend more time with her children. She brought her knowledge and 17 years of experience in building systems and processes and scaling from corporate her corporate career from an engineering leadership to fast track her real estate investing journey. In her first two years of investing full-time, she purchased, renovated, 
rented and refinanced properties, creating a $4 million rental portfolio. It is now her passion to empower other investors to pursue entrepreneurship through real estate investing, to live an empowered and financially free life without taking undue risks and over leveraging through her uh, individual coaching program, open spaces for women that she teaches a small group of people how to uh, do that BRR strategy where you're buying it, renting it, uh, getting the money out, and then and then cash flowing it like that. And it's she's going to talk about it in this episode. It's very, very cool. And uh, you should check that, that out and check her out on Instagram. And we give all those links in the show notes. So check it out there. Guys, without any further ado, let's bring on and, and really uh, dive into what I think is a fantastic interview with a really, really interesting person, Pollock Shaw. All right, Pollock, I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you very much for taking the time. Hi, thank you for having me. No problem, no problem. I'm excited to talk to you. I, I mentioned that I, I had heard you on Bigger Pockets. I loved your story. I love your background. Uh, I, I love everything about it. And I think some of the things you're doing is going to be particularly interesting to uh, a section of my audience that uh, is really kind of in the same situation that you were in and wants to get out of it. And they see buy and holds as, as a great vehicle for that. So I'd love to dig into that. But before we get that far into it, let's go back. Let's dial this back to pre-real estate investor time for you. What were you doing? What, what exactly was your life like in terms of both, not just um, not just career, but your your personal life? Like what, what was happening in your life? And then what made you take that first step? Well, how did you even get interested in real estate to begin with? Um, yeah, I'm super excited to be here. Um, yeah, so as my background, I'm a mechanical engineer and I worked in corporate for 17 years. I was climbing the corporate ladder and my job was to, um, we had developed a framework and I would go uh, from company to company helping um, CEOs improve their bottom line. So systems and processes was uh, a big part of what I did. And it was really great. I was around smart people. I was traveling all over the world and I was well-respected within, you know, that, that community. Um, it was really great because it was just my husband and I, what happened is, uh, after, <laughs> after we had kids, everything changed. And I realized that this whole concept of climbing the corporate ladder was just not going to work as a stressful corporate couple lifestyle. Yeah. Um, the, the higher up I went, the less time I had for my family. And I had waited till my late thirties to have kids and it, it left me resentful. And I felt like a lie had been sold to me. I felt like you keep hearing like, Hey, uh, study, whatever, be financially stable and then have kids and everything's going to be fine. And it's not like that because it, it gets really complicated. So I asked my boss if I could have some flexibility and that was not an option. So after months of turmoil, my husband and I decided to become a single income family. And it was hard because I was making six figures and there was a significant impact on our finances. Sure, sure. And, but I wanted to still make an impact and I wanted to do something meaningful uh, while I was with my kids, but I, I wanted to do it on my own terms. And we had invested in a couple of rentals uh, by then. So I kind of had a feel for how, um, how, how great real estate investing can be. And I would take my kids to show, show the rental and I kind of get, got a feel for dealing with tenants and things like that. 
Um, and so when when it was time to figure out what I was going to do next, uh, buy and hold seems seemed like the best option. Okay, so you had a you, you, did you know at that point were you familiar with what flipping and wholesaling was? Was that on your radar, or was it just rentals was all you really knew about? Yeah, I really didn't understand what any of that was. I was mainly thinking, you know, as a family with two incomes, you just think of it as a way to park your money. We mm-hmm. would save up uh, all the money we could. Um, I would pay higher um, taxes every month. So I would get a big chunk uh, when it was time to get tax returns yeah. and like figure out a way, you know, borrow from 401k, whatever. And we would put a down payment and just purchase a property. Yeah. Yeah, and that, then so we got introduced to the concept of cash flow and all of these great things. Yeah, and I, you know what, your story. One of the things I think why it appeals to me personally is I was in that corporate life, uh, that rat race, and, and the same thing. I thought go to college, you mm-hmm. know, get the job, work up the corporate ladder. But you find the farther you go up that ladder, the more they demand of you, and the less they c- really care about what personally you have going on or what your goals are personally. And uh, it gets tough. And I think this is sort of a side note, but this whole, you know, as we record this, we're in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic. And I think people being forced to work at home is going to perhaps show or make make it even more obvious to people who have devoted their lives and they're just like all about the corporate grind and never free time. Like this may open their eyes to like, wow, I don't really want to go back to that. So I think companies may have to take notice and change maybe a little bit. Like you said, you asked for more flex time. And I don't know what industry you were a mechanical engineer in, but I was in the automotive industry. And um, yeah, flex time, no way. Like you yeah. show up at seven and you're there until six and that's it. You don't get you don't get to you know have flex time. So yeah, I I totally resonate with that, and that's a lot of the reason why I left too. I was just sick of felt like I had sold my soul to a company, and it wasn't fun. Right, and uh, again, I I was very similar to uh, what you did as I was working at a factory. So same thing. It's it's very hard to think of that as a flexible position when yeah. the machines are running. Yeah, exactly. It's hard. From home, you can't do some of the things that you need to do. Right. So I get that. And I think a lot of companies are very just antiquated and they're very traditional right. in the way they do things and they just don't, they don't see that as an option. So, okay. So, <clears throat> excuse me, you already had a couple of rentals when you kind of made this life decision. How did you approach it when you decided to leave? Um, did you just quit cold turkey? Did you like, and I'll just tell you why I'm asking. When I left my my corporate position, um, my wife and I had a conversation probably very similar to what you and your husband did. And um, I, I, and she's she's much more conservative than I am. I'm more of a risk taker. So I said, listen, I know this is probably uncomfortable and you're a little stressed. I'm going to save a year's salary, put it away. And then if something goes horribly wrong and I have to concede that I'm just not cut out for being an entrepreneur, then it gives us a little cushion. I can go back and I can go back into corporate if I want to. And everyone does it differently. Some people just quit cold turkey. How did that look for you? Was it just a cold turkey? We're done in two weeks notice and we're out? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm an engineer, so all of our spreadsheets. So <laughs> uh, so I said, okay, this is my uh, monthly um, take-home salary. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to subtract childcare expenses from that. Uh, because I'm going to have my kids with me. Sure. And then I'm going to uh, subtract the rental income from that, that I was making uh, from the couple of rental properties that I had. Yeah. And I'm going to let go of my um, need for a bonus or a 401k and all that, because I felt like if I was able to spend the time the way I wanted to spend, then I would kind of feel like that compensated for that part of the income. Yeah. 
And then whatever cut I was making per month, I thought, okay, am I comfortable taking that cut to have this lifestyle on a day-to-day basis? So that's how I made that decision. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's very analytical. It's uh, it's exactly what I would have expected. It was a thought, <laughs> thoughtful way of, of exiting. So when you did that, okay, you made that decision. Were people freaked out by the way that you worked with? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, I know it's what it was for me. People are like, what? What are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah um, my um, So my mom is a feminist. I grew up in India and I was an only child, grew up in 80s and 90s in India. And she worked really hard to instill the the whole concept of feminism and that I could be whoever I wanted to be in me. So when I told her I was quitting my job, she was like, is this why I gave up my life so you could grow up and then eventually quit your job? Um, and I was like, no, no, mom, there's a plan here. <laughs> um, I think I would say that my husband uh, supported me in the sense that this was a big financial change for our family. So yeah. I really think it was a huge risk for him too, because mm-hmm. I hadn't really achieved anything yet, right? So it's a whole different industry. Yep. And um, he said, if you feel very strongly about it, we'll figure out how to make it work. <laughs> that's awesome. No, that's cool. And I think it's underrated sometimes how important it is to have a spouse that supports you. And I had the same thing. My wife and I were actually in the business together. We did it part-time on the side and we weren't doing buy and hold. We were flipping, but um, we did it on the side together as a team. And then at some point, you know, she just said, this is a lot of stress for me. <laughs> you know, I, I have a full-time job and I'm not, this risk is really kind of grinding away at my at my brain. So um, I, I started doing it on my own. But having that spouse that supports what you're doing, absolutely 100% critical. And I think a lot of people overlook that and they go, well, I'm just going to do it. I don't care what they think. It's like, no, you really need to bring them aboard and bring them along with that that journey so that because, man, the stress is going to be enough without having a spouse that completely doesn't buy into what you're doing. So, yeah, that's, that's I great. I agree 100%. Uh, this question gets asked all the time that – Hey, I'm really into real estate, but my spouse isn't. And I want to take part of our savings and use it to do X, Y, Z, whatever the desire is for real estate investing. And my spouse isn't on board. And I really think that you really have to be on the same page when it comes to investing. That's a couple's decision to make together. And you have to somehow meet in the middle somewhere. Totally. And it doesn't, not everybody has to think the same way. And that's the beauty of being a part of a couple where you complement each other and you know you have to figure out how to meet in the middle so you can achieve the best for your family. Yeah, 100%. I totally agree with that. So now you started this. Was your goal when you started, uh, when you left your, your job and you started kind of down this path of being a real estate investor, was your goal to supercharge the business or was it like, let's be slow and steady, methodical, let's not go too crazy here? Or did you go, no, man, I want to I wanna go for it hard? I would say in the beginning, I really just didn't want to lose money. Yeah. And <laughs> that was like yeah. my primary objective in the beginning. I wanted to make sure I figure out a strategy that would allow me to keep growing the portfolio of rentals um, and not, there's just so much information out there. Yeah. So I, I wanted to make sure I learned something properly. And then once that was done, then there was no stopping me then. I was able to really set high standards for myself. Yeah. I know it's funny once you get out there and start doing it, you start realizing what you you know the what you're doing, how it can multiply and how great that can be. So talk to me about supercharging. What does that mean? 
Well, first of all, let's talk about the approach that you have. It's the BRRRRR strategy. What is that exactly? <laughs> yes. So, so the big thing with someone like me, once in our case, it was us becoming a single income family, you lose all those additional funds. You will lose that seed money that you can accumulate again and again to buy rentals. Yep. And then if the goal is to build wealth and income, then buy and hold um, seem like the best option. And what the birth strategy does is it allows you to take a finite amount of funds and grow a portfolio exponentially through that. So, so the birth strategy basically means that you take a finite amount of money, invest it into a distressed property, renovate it, and then when you refinance it, you're able to put your or- pull your original funds out and move it to the next property. Yep. And supercharge while still owning the property which cash flows right so you have the cash out and then you have the cash flow so supercharging it for us so what what i started doing was that i was i was doing that again and again right and then i was like this is really slow like i have to figure out a way to yeah to re- <laughs> to amp this up <laughs> so a couple of things um i noticed um so the first thing was I noticed that some of our properties had a very low ROE. So we all talk about ROI, right? Return on investment. So you invest a certain amount of money and you want to know how much uh, return you're getting annually. But then there is this concept of return on equity, meaning I had some properties that had significantly appreciated and they had a lot of equity in them, but I was still making the same amount of money per month that I was making on other properties that had very little equity. Right. So we, we decided to do two things. One was we could pull that equity out uh, with a loan or by refinancing. And the other option was uh, we sell... Uh, two or three properties every year that have the most amount of equity and then move that money over to grow the portfolio further. So how much of your strategy involves looking for properties that have a potential to appreciate and and not? By the way, I didn't ask you, and shame on me for this, where are, where do you invest? What state are you in? Yeah. Uh, so, so we invest in Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a really great market. There is a lot of uh, influx of people moving into Philadelphia. There's hospitals, universities, Great, great place to invest. The neighborhoods are very empowered to, you know, have developers uh, come up from within. Yeah. And so inherently, a lot of the neighborhoods of Philadelphia are on an upswing. Um, so that that definitely helped. Yeah. Um, it also helped to learn as, as you get better and better at any strategy, you're able to uh, have better margins. So that that helped as well. Definitely. So it sounds like though in Philadelphia, I'm in Michigan, and and I would imagine there's some some similarities there. In Michigan, there are neighborhoods within my market that have very significant chance for appreciation. They're on the upswing. They're they're growing up in value, and there's some neighborhoods that where you buy them, they're not going to probably appreciate very much at all. Mm-hmm. There's a very limited limited opportunity for that, and I think. For me, at least, and I'm wondering if it's the same for you, and I'm wondering what your strategy is here. For me, you can go like there's a scale, right? At one very far end of the scale is maximum cash flow, zero appreciation. And Mm -hmm. the other end is minimal cash flow, maximum appreciation. And then Mm -hmm. I I usually am somewhere in the middle. Do you have a strategy or does part of your strategy incorporate how much will this appreciate versus not versus how much cash flow? You know, like how much of that do you have to go give and take with cash flow and appreciation? That's a really, really good question, actually. So yes, so the 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 A neighborhoods in Philadelphia, when we first started investing, were really appreciating fast. 
And those were the neighborhoods that had minimal cash flow, but very high probability of appreciation. Yep. And those were the properties uh, we are uh, we sold last year. And that's what we plan to do. Um, the B and the C neighborhoods, which which is where I love investing, mm-hmm. are the neighborhoods where the appreci- appreciation is steady. There is no real, um, I don't know if I should call it volatility. There is no really a, real expectation of quick appreciation sure. there. Um and then there is the uh, the uh, the D neighborhoods, and I personally don't invest in D neighborhoods, even though cash flow wise they might be more more profitable. Uh, so B and C neighborhoods are uh, my favorite neighborhoods to invest in. I like helping families who are trying to get send their kids to school to you know to yeah. provide housing for them, and the the cash flow is stable, the appreciation is stable. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. That's awesome. So let me ask you this. I, I know that you are aware, and we'll get into a little bit where you're finding deals. You're aware of wholesalers. You're aware of flippers. Does that does that business model appeal to you at all, or you pretty much don't don't really want to go into that area and just stick with rentals? What do, what does your like future look like for that? Again, okay, great question. So one of the so there are many many components to to supercharging this bar strategy, and one of the things I talked about was return return on equity and understanding that and and using that equity. And the other component is uh, the philosophy that I go into it with. I I know at any given point in time why I'm doing this. This is always at the back of my mind is I'm doing this to have more time with my kids. Yeah. And if I try to acquire a lot of different skill sets, then it would mean it would take away time from me. And I'm doing this to gain time. So I'm okay to spend the money to either work with a reputable wholesaler, hire an an agent, hire a general contractor. There are multiple ways that investors um, make their bottom line get better and better by acquiring all of these skills. And I have chosen to to not do that i don't want to make that few thousand extra dollars by acquiring all of those skill sets yeah so i work with wholesalers i don't wholesale myself or or plan to yeah okay that's fair enough and i, I like I, I suspected that was the answer but i wanted to make sure that you had a chance to answer that yourself because i know there's people out there that are wondering why not just flip you'll make you know make bigger chunks of money but some of it is about the lifestyle that you want too and what do you really want to commit because for the fact of the matter is, even though systems and processes can be put in place to automate that too, for sure in the beginning, it's very work intensive. It, it requires a lot of your time. So I totally respect that. You've got kids and you've got your strategy. And just knowing what you want and and going after that, there's a lot of power there. Some people go, well, it's a shiny object syndrome, right? They see all these different strategies like, oh, that person looks like they're really successful. I'm going to do that. And then this person looks really, I'm going to do that. And pretty soon they're not good at anything and they have no time. They're running around like crazy and they're not getting any traction because they're not really focused. I think focusing is is a big thing. So let's talk about, and this is something that plagues people right now, I think specifically, uh, but even over the last few years, for a lot of investors, it's been a little bit challenging to find deals. And we mm-hmm. talked about one way I think that you do it, but how? What are the ways that you utilize to to find these opportunities and bring these across your, you know, your desk, so to speak? Where are you finding these deals? Uh, yeah, it it takes a little bit to build a good deal pipeline, and I find that the best deal pipelines are created by relationships. So. A few things. Um, I work with great uh, agents who have a good eye for what I'm looking for. Great wholesalers. Um, 
The key is to really know your property avatar. It's my own term. Property avatar is the type of property you are after, right? How many bedrooms? How many bathrooms? What is the zip code you're looking at? And get even more specific. Hey, I only invest east of this street, um, north of this street, however specific you want to get. Yeah. Uh, so I believe that the very first thing to do is define the type of property you're after and get as specific as possible. And um, I have a range um, of the purchase price, a range of type of rehab I would do. And everybody I work with knows that. So in the beginning, um, when I would give out my business cards at networking events, or if I, um, I if I met somebody through a referral, when I was talking to them, the first thing I would do is be like, be like, I'm going to, I'm looking for something very specific. And this property is in, fits this criteria. Yeah. And what does, what that does is two things. One, that person knows that you're serious. And two, when a property that fits that criteria hits their desk, they think of you first because no one else has been that specific. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. so they, they, they come to you and, what I did over time to build these relationships was uh, I realized that a lot of agents and wholesalers have not been trained in this whole concept of deal analysis and how we as investors do our numbers. Totally. So each time I was rejecting a deal, I would get on the phone with the wholesaler and uh, go over my numbers with them and explain to them why it didn't work for me. And I was helping them with their business too. That really helps a wholesaler out because they have, haven't had anybody, some of them haven't had anybody do that to them yet. Sure. And then the next time they have a deal, you're training them to bring you better deals. Yeah. So, so one of, one of the things was that. And then the, the other thing we do is I'm really big on trying not to waste anybody's time. So, un, and understanding that in real estate, Anybody who's bringing you a deal only gets paid if you close. All right. the time they're spending on you before that is just time. Yep. So um, getting getting that understanding and making sure that you when, when you are serious about something, you do close at the end and you figure out a way to you know, get the funds and get the financing and get to the closing table so that you build a reputation in the yeah. industry as somebody who is serious about what they're doing and you're a business. Yep. And and I'll tell you from a from a guy who is primarily a wholesaler, I've got a rental portfolio, but if I had to classify myself in one single way, I do more wholesales than anything. Uh you're you're 100% right. I don't make money from buyers who who just talk and go through properties constantly. You know, it's when right. you buy properties. And I would rather have that relationship and know what you're what you're looking for and know that you're serious and yeah, that's huge and that's that's big for a lot of people who will un, maybe unknowingly a little bit kind of waste people's time like you talked about. And yeah. when you start wasting people's time and that's how you're labeled inside of someone's company that you're a time waster, um, yeah. that doesn't do you any favor. So so that's a great, that's great advice. So And, and working with a, a wholesaling company like yours, if, if there is a seasoned wholesaler that has a good reputation in the market, I mean, that's an amazing relationship to form and, and you want to make sure you nurture that and you want to make sure you give that person enough business for them to keep thinking about you when they have a deal. Yeah. People always ask me like, how do I become a VIP in, in your <laughs> company? And I said, buy a lot of properties, like just exactly. don't waste my time, buy properties and you will 
eventually rise to the top of people that I'm thinking about when I get a deal. You know, it's just the way it goes. There's no other, there's no like secret list with that. You can just be my good buddy. Like you just buy properties and that's all it takes. Um, so other than wholesalers, what are some of the other ways? Or, or I assume is wholesaling wholesalers and being on their list. Is that like number one deal flow for you? Or are there other things that are working really well? There, that's one of the ways. And um, I still find properties on the MLS. And um, I mean, a lot of people say that MLS is, you know, not a great place to find a property. Um, but I mean, what you have to think about is, does it fit your deal analysis? Not whether it's an excellent deal or not. Yeah. Do, does it fit your fit your numbers? Are you going to be in for an investor interested in the bar strategy, all you need to know is two things. Can I cash out and can I cash flow? And if that works at the end, then it's fine if, if you purchase a property off of the MLS. So yeah, we I find uh, properties from the MLS all the time. And um, I have a relationship with a realtor. She, uh, We've worked together on many deals now. She's been trained on um, what she needs to get me in terms of pictures and videos. So I've purchased properties while we were visiting family in India. Um, she'll go through the property. She'll take the specific pictures. I've asked her to take the videos and then she'll go in it, in it again with my contractor. If, you know, if I look it over and if I say, okay, the numbers work and, and we can move to the closing table from there. You, you brought up something uh, a few minutes ago that I forgot to circle back on that I wanted to. It's really, really important. And I think it's something people don't talk about enough. And you usually find out the hard way. And you said it, realtors don't really analyze properties the same way that we do as investors. And it's not that they don't know their business. They do. They know their business in the way that they conduct their business to what's important for them. But you can't, and I did this early on, you can't just go to a realtor and say, hey, I'm an investor. Find me deals that I can make money and just trust everything that they're doing in the background. You need to help work with them and train them and explain to them what exactly is important to you, how you run your numbers, and mm -hmm. what are the numbers that you utilize. And you, you said it earlier, and I meant to circle back. It's super important. People think because they're a realtor, they've been in, and worse to me is if they've been in business for 30 years, like they're farther from knowing and understanding what you're doing than maybe some of the newer realtors. And frankly, I think a lot of times if you want to work with realtors, a nice place to start, I don't know where you found the ones that you're working with, but a nice place to start sometimes are RIA meetings because you kind mm -hmm. of, uh, a lot of times realtors, especially ones that have been around for a while, have a negative taste in their mouth or a bad taste in their mouth about investors because they have maybe misconceptions or maybe they've just dealt with some bad ones. When you go to a RIA and find a realtor, usually you've gotten past the hurdle of, you know, investors are horrible to work with. They're there, they get it. And they're usually a little bit more progressive and, and open-minded to what you're trying to do. So yeah, that's a, that's a really good tip. And also, I find a lot of uh, connections with wholesalers and realtors on uh, online forums and Facebook groups. When you see people, when you see someone aggressively marketing yeah. anything, well, not aggressively that they get kicked out of a group, but within <laughs> within yeah. within the guidelines, uh, when you see somebody working hard uh, and if they're legit, I will you know strike up a conversation and, sure. and introduce myself and and try to make a connection with yeah, them. Yeah, that's a really good sign. You're right. I, I I totally agree with that. So especially right now because we don't we cannot go to any of the networking events yeah, during the pandemic. Right. Exactly. That that's that's huge. You're right. I, I have a note here when I was kind of looking back and and trying to learn more about you. Uh, what's worst case scenario deal analysis? What does that mean? So. That's a great question. So I'm an engineer. 
And as an engineer, I was trained to be doing numbers all the time from the conservative perspective. If something is about to break, when there is a load of five pounds on it, you add a factor of safety of four, multiply it four times, and then test it for 20 pounds. So this is like how engineers think, right? And when it comes to taking risks when it comes to comes to investing that doesn't work otherwise you'd never make a deal 100 so, yeah. so i had to figure out how to take risks but again i'm all about spreadsheets so i had to figure out how to develop some kind of a framework so i know exactly what amount of risk i'm taking so worst case scenario is uh, what i would do is and and this applies to anybody who's new at investing uh, is or or anybody trying to get to the next level right any as soon as you go to the next level it's higher risk yeah. so what happens is what stops all of us from taking that higher risk is we bundle all of the risks associated with that step into one big giant pot and that makes us so afraid that we cannot take that step right yep so what I do is I take all of the risks, risks involved and list them in the first column of our spreadsheet. For example, for my strategy, uh, it would be uh, what if I go over my construction numbers? Um, what if it doesn't appraise for the amount I thought it would appraise for? Right. Um, what if I don't get the rent that I want? And things like that. List them. Second column is the worst case scenario dollar amount. So for example... Uh, what if I go over my construction budget? Well, what's the worst case? You're not going to go, you're not going to really double your construction budget overnight. Right. right. Um, so, so figure out what a realistic worst case scenario is and list all of them. Yep. Um, and then figure out a solution to it. So for example, for construction, you can add, we always add a 15% contingency and up your budget by 15%. Yep. Um, for the appraisal amount, um, especially right now, so during this pandemic, we're expecting the appraisal amounts might go down six months later when we're out to refinance. So we do our calculations, uh, reducing the, the the ARV, the after repair value by 10% of the property. So there are a lot of things you can do to mitigate those risks. And yep. then the risks that you cannot mitigate and you just simply don't have an answer, pile them up. And and see what the dollar amount is and say, worst case scenario, you're going to lose $10,000 on this deal. Is that an amount of money you're comfortable losing to learn all of the things that you will learn from that deal? Wow. That's, that's a question a, I ask myself. Yeah. That's a, that's a pretty healthy way to look at it, right? Most people go, oh, 10000 under no circumstances. But Listen, I've I've learned a lot on deals where I've lost money, <laughs> and there are yeah, some there is some too. distinctions that you make when you lose money, and it, it's a little more tangible. That is awesome, and I, you know it's funny. It brings up something that I I thought about in the past quite a bit, and I've I've articulated a few times here. But people worry mostly, or or I should say, uh, fairly exclusively about being conservative enough to not lose money. Like, oh, I don't want to lose money, so. You know, worst case scenario, I'm gonna I'm gonna assume that the cost of the renovation is gonna go over by fifteen percent, and I'm gonna assume the ARV I'm gonna go over by fifteen percent, and like all these things. There's a window, in my opinion, of you can get so conservative, like you said, that you'll never buy a deal, right? And then you can be so aggressive that everything looks like a good deal, and there's like this band in the middle somewhere, the sweet spot where you're conservative enough that you're taking the necessary, appropriate precautions in your numbers but not being so careful that 
you literally you you spreadsheet yourself right out of any possibility of buying anything, and that that can happen. I've had people who come to me and say, "No, there are no good deals, like nothing." And I'll go, "Well, let's look at how you're doing this." And they'll go, "Well, I put in a 25 percent contingency in my construction, and I assume the ARV, I'm you know, it's going to go down by you know 20 percent." It's like, listen, you've built these things in. It's like over constraining to go to, into the mechanical right. engineering side. You can add tolerancing into a into a print that will literally over constrain to make it an impossibility to make a part or the part has to be ex- there can be no tolerance and that's not realistic so everything right. uh, in engineering I know I was kind of in that world for a while with prints everything has this tolerance band that once stacked up can't over constrain it so that it's an impossible thing to do so yeah that's that's cool I like that I like that you said that and I like that you said look at the worst case scenario this is how much I could lose in the worst case scenario. Am I willing to lose that much? And then you obviously have to weigh in how likely you know it is to happen. I guess, but um, yeah, I love that. I love that. It's a great. And, it's great. And at the risk of you know bringing a cliche, we could just keep doing the same thing we're doing today for the next twenty years, and nothing would change. But if you really want to grow, something has to change. And with any change, there is an inherent risk involved. Yeah. We cannot mitigate every single risk factor out there. So at some point, you have to take a leap of faith. Yeah, 100%. You do. You, you just do. Everything isn't 100% guaranteed in anything, but specifically right. in this this world either. Yeah. So I, I know you, from having heard you on other podcasts, um, I know that you did one deal that cash flows significantly. And this isn't like downtown uh, I don't think at least downtown San Diego real estate that just is going to cash flow in the in the tens of thousands. Like you're you're in a market that this is a high number. Like you you have a deal that cash flows thirty five hundred dollars a month. What is that? How do you find a deal like that? What can you walk us through that specific deal? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I think you're talking about that triple triplex deal. Yeah. So it's um, yeah. So I love uh, the app uh, Redfin, but any app, right? Zillow, all of these things have apps. And then when you are an investor, you uh, are constantly looking at what's new on the market. So yep. I was I was trying to search for properties and I found that there were three properties side by side listed for a significantly higher amount than any other single family in the you know five five block radius of that spot. Um, and they, they were side by side and they were listed at the same price. And I had to go in and check what it was. I found that it was the same listing agent, same description. And when that happens, you know that it's probably owned by the same person. They're yeah. trying to, you know, it's a portfolio. Yeah. Um, so, so I got in touch with that agent. There were three triplexes listed at 207 each, I believe. What happened is we did a walkthrough. It was tenant occupied, needed a lot of work. Uh, we did a walkthrough and, and, uh, we, we realized that the work that was needed was way more than anybody was expecting. Yeah. And so the price would have to come down significantly. And I don't try to usually do that, uh, without adding <laughs> a comment saying, yeah. so, so we said, okay, so, we can only make the numbers work if we can buy them at 125 each. And that may not be what the owner wants. So our offers on the table, I am happy for them to try to sell them individually and come back to us if nothing works. Right. So 
as long as we we're still in the market and haven't found something else. Right. So winter was approaching. The owner wanted to get out of they they were retiring. They wanted to get out of the deal uh, before winter hit because they they had a lot of heating problems. And in Philly, there is you know it snows and you're <laughs> yeah. by law required to provide heat. And th- yeah. that that was a huge mess that was about to happen. So. They wanted out. They tried a couple of individual, uh, selling them individually, people with FHA loans. Some, uh, so somebody had cold feet. They backed out. Somebody tried to do an inspection. The amount of work was so much. It, it just, it was too, too daunting of a task. Yeah. And so, so we were able to close on that deal for, um, 125 each. And then we put about another, I don't have the numbers in front of me right now. We, but we put another, Probably another another um, hundred grand per property on it. Oh wow! Okay. And I think I'm I'm not one hundred percent sure, but somewhere around that range. Mm-hmm. And uh, appraised for almost a million when wow. we got done, and we were able to add another apartment in the basement for one of the buildings. It it was a ten unit deal as opposed to a nine unit deal. Okay. And yeah, after all the expenses and uh, taking out twenty percent for capex, opex, vacancy, and everything, so the the cash flow is around thirty five hundred a month. Wow! Now, how how tempting is it to sell that and re- do the BRR right, like get, like refinance <laughs> it and get that money out? Yeah, so the, we got the original cash out, and it's still cash flows. It's a it's a great property. I love yeah. the tenants that are in there. We actually changed the entire block because. We really f- gave it a facelift. We helped uh, one of the neighbors uh, start a landscaping business because she did the landscaping for all of the three um, oh, wow. three properties. And the neighbors started coming to her and asking her for her business card. So there were cool. so many good things that happened. I, I don't think we're going to sell it anytime soon. Yeah. This is it's a part of the community, and yeah, you know, it feels good. Yeah, that's, that's we made awesome. a massive change. Plus, it's really good cash flow. Yeah, that's awesome. That is so cool. What a great, what a great story. And like, just even the the end of it, right? Like the little, like at the end of it, like, oh, by the way, we helped someone start their own business. Like, how cool is that? You know yeah. what I mean? Like you changed her life and she's not even one of your tenants. So that's mm-hmm. awesome. So talk about this. I, I have a note here to, to ask you before we, we end this to, to talk about how to supercharge using uh, hard money. Like, how does that, how does that work? Because a lot of people right now are, are maybe saying, that's all well and good. I don't have the money to even start this whole thing. Right. Like how do I even, if I don't have any money, what do I do? Or not much money, I should say. Yeah. So so a lot of components to supercharging the birth strategy. And we, we talked about uh, understanding the return on equity. And we, we talked about, you know, understanding the concept of not trying to learn everything. And thanks for bringing this up there. The other component is uh, leveraging your funds early on. Um, a lot of people shy away from hard money lenders because um, it seems like the interest rate is really high. But hard money lenders are amazing partners uh, for growth. And if you have um, $100,000, you could do one deal, purchase something for $50,000, put another $50,000 in it for rehab and be done with it. Or you could put 15 or 20% down on four or five deals. Right. And work with a hard money lender as long as the numbers work. And people shy away from hard money lenders thinking the interest rate is so high. They're charging me 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, even 12, 13%, right? And people shy away from that. But as long as it fits your numbers, I keep saying as long as you can cash out and as yeah. long as you can cash flow, 
have at it, pay the interest and do the deal. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. I totally agree. It's all, it's all, if, if, as long as you factor it in, none of it matters really, as long as you factor it in. Right. So I, I tell people the same thing when they're, when they're flipping, it's like, well, if you buy a, a property for a hundred thousand dollars and put 20,000 into it, it's no different than buying it for 20 and putting a hundred into it. It's just, as long as the numbers work, it doesn't really matter how they're allocated so much. So yeah, that's a good point. Just just bake it into the numbers, and if it still works, like what is your problem, right? Like just just do it. So right, and I, I actually love working with hard money lenders better than even uh, working with uh, private lenders who may offer better terms because I find again talking about scaling and systems and processes. Hard money lenders have set systems in place in this season of my life where I have little children. I really need no guesswork. I, I want to know exactly what's happening and, yeah. and be done with it. Yeah. No, that makes total sense. And um, something we didn't talk about in the beginning when we started talking specifically is what is your what is your business look like right now today? What What is the size of it? And I know people are asking specifically, how many doors do you have or how many yeah. units do you have? What does what your business look like today? And then let's talk about what your what your goals are, where you're trying to go. So uh, we have 30 some uh, tenants right now. Um, uh, the portfolio is probably still worth about 4 million that it was um, about six months ago. I assume because of the pan- pandemic, we're going to see a little bit of a fluctuation. Our revenue last year was a million. And um, I'm actually taking a six month uh, soft break to work on my health. So I've hired a health coach. We're coming very close to the end of the six months, but soft break, meaning I'm still um, doing things, but I'm not going to jump a level right now. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, so I'm, um, my kids are five and three. And I started this business when my son, son who's three years old was born and being a mom and an entrepreneur has um, just made me forget what my body needs. So yeah. I'm, I'm just taking this time to just realign myself and, and get a handle on my health and, that's awesome. That's so cool. I yeah, it's something that I think a lot of people neglect, especially when they start their own business because it demands so much of your time and you're balancing that with yeah, for sure and you're balancing that with kids and 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 a husband and all this other stuff and that's the one thing that people kind of push aside, but you know, that's we don't that's not a recipe for a long life when you when you completely push that aside. So, that's right. awesome. But my cool. goal is still to add uh between um, ten and fifteen doors every year, um, not not stop that. Yeah, and that's not a small goal. So I'm sure some people go, "Wait a minute, that's a soft break." Like getting ten, you know, uh, pro- properties under your portfolio. So uh, good on you. Congratulations. That that's fantastic. Um, before we we end this, and by the way, this was this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, I think you're super impressive, um, in, insanely clear-minded and, and very focused and very logical about what you're doing, but still um, doing it in a supercharged way, right? You're not holding yourself back, but you're just, you you really feel like someone who, who really gets it and you have a healthy attitude about it. And, and I think that that's just awesome. I think it's great. What, oh, what do you have, you. what do you have going on right now that you are excited about that you want to talk about? Anything you want to share with the listeners before we wrap this up? Yeah. So we, uh, so I've been wanting to shout from the rooftops since we figured this strategy out. And especially for corporate couples who are trying to raise small children, this this move of one of the people from 
A couple into real estate investing can be amazing to reduce your stress levels, to build wealth and income for the family. And uh, uh, I've started a coaching program last year. So we're in the third cohort. Uh, It's a small group coaching program. I personally run it. And we're starting a new cohort um, on June uh, June 6th of 2020. I don't know when uh, whoever's listening to this. Is, is going, yeah, going to- uh, this this will air. I want to say it's going to be like the first of June, the first very first okay. week of June. Yeah, so we're starting a new cohort shortly, okay. <laughs> and I'm okay. excited about that. Yeah, awesome. That's very cool. Now, is this specifically for like the BRR strategy, the buy? Yeah, yeah it's okay. for the supercharged yeah. bar strategy, okay. and and I always uh, I always tell people that there is one way to to get into real estate, which is when you're young, you don't have money, any money, you have to figure out a way to generate income first by becoming a realtor, wholesaler, um, even, you you know, even a contractor, different ways of participating in real estate. That is another way, which is when you come from another industry, if you have some funds and really growing a portfolio, and that's what I teach. Yeah. Awesome. I think that's cool. And I, I, uh, I definitely think you're the right person for it. You you have a very good strategy and a very clear, like I said, clear strategy and clear focus. And I, I think that that's, those are a very powerful combination. So um, I appreciate congratulations. appreciate that coming from you, especially. Thank you. I'm thank you. Fan. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that too. Um, okay. Awesome. So is there, if there's nothing else, I don't know if there's any like contact information you want to give out or nah, not really. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, okay. Some people don't. So I want to make sure. On- Go, go ahead. What? No, some people go, nah, I don't want my email out there. So, okay, good. Let's do it. The best way to uh, to keep in touch with me is follow me on Instagram at Open Spaces Women. We're not just for women, but my handle is Open Spaces Women. Okay, Open Spaces Women. We'll put that in the, I'm writing it down too, but we'll put that in the show notes uh, so people can find you there. Very cool. I will check you out too. I'm on Instagram. So uh, I'm going to, I'm gonna as soon as we get done here, I'm going to go and uh, follow you so I can check out everything that you're doing. I think you're awesome. Sounds great. Thank you. No problem. Thanks for doing this and you have a good rest of your day and stay safe. Thank you. And you too. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I enjoy doing it. Pollock is really, really smart lady. Very, very uh, cool. And I, I love that she came from that engineering background. It's so oftentimes so conservative and so risk averse that uh, she kind of broke that mold and, and she's taken some risks for sure. But listen, uh, you heard her in the interview. Like She runs her numbers. She knows what she's doing. Uh, but there's a fine line between being conservative and just talking yourself out of every single opportunity that comes along. So I loved having her on the ep- this episode, having her on the show and exposing some of the misconceptions about over, you know, conservative approach to this and, and hey, you know, I, I'm used to uh, calculating risks and this is too risky. Like, no, it's not. You just, you, you run your numbers, you know what you're doing and you have to take calculated risks. And sometimes she said it, you have to decide if worst case happens, can I still be okay. Can I, am I going to be able to move forward if I lose some money in this deal? And it's not what you expect. And it certainly doesn't happen very often if you're careful, but you have to make those decisions. And, and if you're not, maybe it's not for you. But if you are willing to take some calculated risks, there's definitely a way to do it that mitigates a lot of the risk. And she's a great example of someone who just went for it. Three years in, $4 million in assets and a million dollars in reoccurring revenue. I mean, Come on, that's exactly what we're trying to do here, right? Create that lifestyle and create that legacy and give ourselves back some time. So 
I loved having her on. Hope you guys really enjoyed that. I enjoyed meeting her and talking to her. A lot, a lot of fun. And as always, listen, if you want to have that reoccurring revenue, if you want to have that $4 million portfolio, you can't get it by just sitting there on the sidelines. You have to get in the game, guys. So get out there and just start. Okay, we'll talk to you next time. Okay, good. You're still here. You know if you hang around long enough on my podcast and listen all the way to the end, sometimes I share things with you that you just won't hear anywhere else. So I want to talk to you about the seven-figure flipping vault. Guys, this is a video library filled with everything you need to know about building a house flipping or wholesaling business. And if you already have a house flipping and wholesaling business and you think you don't need what's in this vault, let me tell you, think again. I'm gonna read you some of the titles of the videos that you get inside this vault. How to set your goals, right? Goal setting and planning. How to measure your results. How to find motivated sellers in your market. Are you kidding me? That's like probably the number one thing I get asked by all real estate investors. How do I find motivated sellers? We have a video that covers that from A to Z. How to pick a market. How to know if your market that you're in is a good market for you to be in. Is it good for you as a wholesaler? Is it good for you as a flipper? There are ways, there are things that you can do to find out if you're in the right market. How to set up a phone system to track calls and manage leads. Uh, what kind of CRM should you be using? Uh, when you talk to the homeowner, when you're meeting with sellers, getting that contract signed, how do you do that? What contracts and forms do you need? Do you need the contracts and forms? Well, they're in there, they're available to you. So that's a lot of the flipping stuff with wholesalers, uh, finding those cash buyers. How are you finding buyers that are gonna buy the deals that you're finding when you're in the home talking to the seller? 16 hacks to build and grow your buyers list. How to pick a good market. Again, just like a house flipper, you need to know if you're in a good market as a, as a wholesaler. And the videos inside of this vault are going to give you everything. Deal analysis, finding the ARV, um, as is value, and using the tools that it takes to dial those numbers in just right. Estimating the repair of, uh, or the cost of repairs when you're doing a flip, right? How do you estimate those things? How do you know? And then on top of that, when you buy this vault, when you get in there, you get a whole series on marketing. How to use list source to pull motivated seller lists. How to skip trace the information if you need to skip trace it and get phone numbers and things like that. How to find deals without spending money. Free strategies to find motivated sellers. And then there's another video, nine low-cost leads, nine low-cost lead source generators. And then Bandit Signs, uh, we talk about a little bit of that, something that works, driving for dollars, ringless voicemail, cold calling. I mean, the list goes on and on of all the ways that we show you how to market and get great deals. And if that's not enough, there's another whole series that comes with this as well about sales and negotiation. Probably the number one difficulty that people have in their business is sales and negotiation. And we walk through it in a multi-series of videos exactly how to negotiate with sellers, exactly how to negotiate with 
buyers? What's it look like behind the scenes of a sales meeting with our team? What do we what do we tell our salespeople when they're going out on the road to, to get those deals? Like, what does that behind the scenes conversation look like? You're gonna see all of that. Guys, there are so many videos that cover every aspect of real estate investing from a wholesaler and a flipper's perspective. If I had these videos, I could have shortcut years and years off of my success track. And I've been able to be very successful, but I guarantee I wasted four or five years just trying to figure it out. You don't have to figure it out anymore. There are solutions out there, and this is one. How do you find me, you might be asking? Great question. If you go to juststartrealestate.com forward slash vault, that's juststartrealestate.com forward slash vault. It'll take you right to it. You can check out the videos. You can see what's all offered there. Guys, this is a tremendous opportunity for you to really turbocharge your business. And we're in kind of a tough time right now for real estate. House prices are, are kind of high all over the place. We have the coronavirus. It's harder and harder to get things done. You need something to help you get over this hump. And this is it, in my opinion. So go check it out. Juststartrealestate.com forward slash vault. You'll be glad you did.